as I mentioned earlier, today we're going to be talking about guilt and the sufferings that can come from guilt and the value that's within that suffering for our guilt. So then as we continue to study these precious words in this book of Luke, I'm reminded that within all of the busy, headlong rush of activities of daily life, we too often, too easily accept the world's explanation for all the things that take place every day. And we forget that God is sovereign in all of the activities of our life. Not just some of those things. He's involved in every activity. And we forget that he reaches his hand in to all the matters that are taking place as we go throughout our day. And by forgetting about him, we join with the rest of the world in all of its foolish assumptions about all of those matters. Especially the assumptions that all those things that are taking place are just random occurrences. Random occurrences that are brought about solely by the random free will behaviors of people or of things. An example that I've given on other occasions, but I'd like to give it again today, is one that's given by one of my favorite Bible teachers, R.C. Sproul. Sproul refers to those kinds of assumptions as believing that there are some maverick, random maverick molecules that are always floating around out there in the air that we breathe, randomly bumping into other maverick molecules, causing each of the things of life to take place. By the way, there's a whole area of physics that believes exactly that. There are no random maverick molecules floating around in the air, randomly bumping into other maverick molecules, causing the things of life to take place. There are no just random acts of nature without purpose, with no one controlling any of it. The saying that, well, things just happen, is not true. But may I ask, do you find yourself believing much the same? That the things that are happening are just random The drawing of that number for the next Powerball. It's a random drawing. May I say to you that I prefer to agree with R.C. Sproul. And I want to assure us that according to these scriptures, there is no such thing as a maverick molecule. Everything in existence is under some form of control and God himself is at the helm of that control. And so then, what would those thoughts have to do with the scripture passage that I'm about to read in a moment. It's this, that not only are the things that take place all around us each day subject to the sovereign plans of God and the control of God, even our very thoughts, even our very thoughts and our emotions are influenced and they're prompted within his sovereign control. Yes, there are other things involved. There are people and the spirit world, But God is at the helm of all that's taking place. So even our very thoughts and our emotions are being influenced and prompted under his sovereign control. Here within these few words of scripture passage that I'll read, we find the simple emotion of guilt. Guilt doing a special kind of work within the mind and the soul of this very heathen king, Herod. It was, as Jesus would say, 
later on in John chapter 16 regarding the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now here in today's passage, we see where the Holy Spirit was already doing his work. Already beginning his work, his preparatory work of convicting people of sins. And let me stop here for a moment and let's listen in on these thought processes of King Herod. This is Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. Now Herod, the tetriarch, heard of all that was done by Jesus, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. It seems that King Herod had been hearing about all the many activities of the Lord Jesus because as Jesus would travel about the towns and the countryside healing the sick and casting out demons, his ministry would often draw the uncomfortable attention of the local leaders. And so here in our text, we read that King Herod, this local government ruler, had been hearing reports about Jesus and he wanted to meet him. And not because he wanted to hear the gospel that Jesus was giving, but because he was perplexed. Things were going on within his mind, and he couldn't figure out what was taking place. Something within Herod's soul was telling him to be concerned about this man, Jesus. But he didn't know what it was or why it was happening. Now these words, though they be only scattered thoughts in the mind of Herod, they reveal some deeply hidden fears and convictions that were taking place, trying to work their way up to the surface so that Herod could deal with them. But unfortunately for him, it doesn't seem that he took his thoughts much further than these, unfortunately. But Herod surely did have good reason to be concerned. His behavior was finding him out. Although Herod was of Jewish birth and very knowledgeable of the laws of the Jewish faith, his behavior showed him to be a reprobate, and he did reprobate things. And also, though Herod was not in the kingly lineage of David, under this provisional allowance of the Roman conquerors, Herod had been placed in this role as king over a portion of the local people there in Israel. And his authority, while sometimes tenuous under the Roman oversight, actually allowed Herod a great deal of freedom to manage the daily affairs of the kingdom, even to the judgment and execution of those people that he deemed to merit that penalty. And that had been so with John the Baptist. Herod, being the arrogant man that he was, could take whatever he wanted for his own, And sometime earlier, he had callously taken his own brother's wife, Herodias, to be his own wife. John the Baptist, being strong in character and conviction, didn't hesitate to bring public condemnation on Herod and on Herodias for this flagrant immorality. Now, why did John do that? We don't know all the reasons why. But as we said a moment ago, God truly is sovereign. And he inserts his hand into all the activities of life. And this was one of those. And perhaps 
One of the reasons that God intervened was to also bring conviction to the other church leaders in that area. Because it should have been them. It should have been them that held their king accountable for his sins. But they didn't. They didn't because of fear or some other reason those church leaders failed in their responsibility. Leaving John then to stand alone in his condemnation of Herod. And so in his anger towards John, Herod had John arrested. And then eventually had him killed, beheaded as a depraved form of gift to his wife and daughter. Listen to this account given in Matthew chapter 14. Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, John, as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now the king was sorry. But nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to this girl. And she brought it to her mother. Folks, how vile and vulgar a thing for Herod to do. To so frivolously have a man beheaded just to fulfill some lust-crazed utterance that he might have made. We can be sure, folks, God will never allow that kind of vile act to go without retribution, both in this life but also in the life to come. But he's also generous. God is generous, even to the vilest of sinners. He doesn't desire that any of us should perish, these scriptures tell us. Even one so vile as Herod, who would so thoughtlessly and foolishly take away the life and ministry of one so important into God's plan of salvation at that time. Now let me pause here for a moment and remind us again that none of this was a surprise to God. God was involved in all that was taking place from the beginning. And God knows the hearts of men, even the vilest and most wicked of men. And yes, John the Baptist was a precious and valuable link in the presentation of the gospel. His message was the first part of salvation, even for you and me. His message was a proclamation that we are desperate sinners in need of repentance. And no doubt that was John's specific message to Herod for the sin that he had been committing in stealing his brother's wife from him. John was God's messenger to Herod to bring him to repentance for his sin. But it so often takes place when we don't want to hear the truth of God, we kill the messenger. And that's what Herod wanted to do. Herod had John in prison to shut him up. John's message also was to all of those listening, and especially to Herodias, to bring her to conviction for her part in that sin. Because God wants all of us, to turn to him. And so this message was also to Herodias to bring her to conviction for her part in that sin. But she had also rejected God's message. And between the two of them, 
Herod and Herodias, using what was probably a very sinful form of dancing, brought Herod's mind and emotions into such a vile state that he recklessly took away the life of God's faithful servant, John. Now, I also want to acknowledge, folks, that there is a constant presence and power of Satan, the evil one, within all that takes place. Because he ever and always has a controlling part in such matters as this. According to those warnings that I've read to us so often in Ephesians chapter 6, Satan and his demons are working and were working in the minds and the hearts and the bodies of each of the people involved. In this case, Herod, Herodias, and Herodias' daughter. And now here sometime later, the memories of those vile and vulgar acts and behaviors, they were stirring within Herod's soul, bringing him to guilt and fear. And here too we see that Herod was aware that his sin could reach beyond this simple accountability of earthly retribution on into another realm, a realm beyond the confines of this world, into that realm where people who die from this life go to be. And these words here imply that Herod believed that people could come back from that realm to exact vengeance for the foul deeds that are done. Listen again to these words. Herod was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Can't you imagine what was going on in his mind? Has John come back from the dead? And he also said by some that Elijah had appeared. And Elijah was a very strong prophet on those who violated God's laws. And by others, that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, now, John, I beheaded. But who is this? Who is this that I hear such things? This was guilt, folks. This was guilt rising up to the surface and doing its work in the heart of Herod. And guilt is such a useful instrument in the hands of God. If it's received in the right way, guilt can bring a person to repentance for the sins they commit. And that was God's purpose. And also, if it's received in the right way, it may go all the way to bringing people to repentance and actually drawing them into a relationship with Christ. Notice the words here at the end of verse 9. Herod said, Now John I have beheaded, but who is this whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. For a moment in time, Herod wanted to see this Jesus. Most likely, this was God's Holy Spirit drawing Herod, giving him one more opportunity, drawing Herod to Jesus. Because God draws men and women to himself. But unfortunately, he doesn't force us to come to him. And that was so with Herod. There's no indication in these scriptures that Herod really tried again to see Jesus. And the only time that he saw Jesus was in those few minutes in that trial just before Jesus was crucified. And that's sad. That's sad because as vile and as awful as Herod was, God still wanted him to know the real truth about Jesus. He doesn't desire, God does not desire that any should perish. These scriptures are clear on that. Now, perhaps this moment of conviction that Herod didn't follow through on was that moment when 
God no longer drew Herod to himself. Because there truly is a time when God will stop contending with the soul of a man or a woman. He tells us that in Genesis chapter 6. He tells us, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. So as we look carefully at Herod's life, it seems that he really might have been getting so close to being so reprobate that God might not contend with his soul any longer. And I'm reminded again of those words there in Hebrews chapter 6. Let me read those again for us. There in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, if they don't follow through, to renew themselves again to repentance, since what they're doing is crucifying again for themselves the Son of God and putting Him to an open shame. Folks, there's no evidence that Herod ever really got close to believing in God. But that may be true. These words pronounce the judgment that's given against all men who will not come as God draws them. And perhaps that's just one more way that God shakes the dust off of his garment against sinful reprobates. But again, the emotional strain of guilt for sins that we've committed is such a useful instrument in the hands of God. It's simply one more way of reaching out to us to bring us to repentance. And we really do need to listen for his still small voice. The question for you and me today is, is God doing that same thing within us, within you and me? Are we possibly holding on to some unconfessed sin? Sin that if left to remain within our hearts might bring us to a point of reprobation. A point where we'll no longer recognize our sin as being something that's wrong. That can happen. That can happen. If we are truly saved, then that sin will not be of the kind that can take us into hell. But listen, it may be sin of a kind that can displease the Lord and can cause Him to withhold that pleasant peace that He wants you and me to have. In some ways, Unrepented sin is like many of our physical diseases. If it's left untreated, it can be and get so infectious that it can grow and malaffect all the areas of our life. We can become depressed, or perhaps even worse, we can become so callous in our behaviors that sooner or later God will cease to contend with us about our sinfulness. And he'll simply leave us to suffer our sufferings. Now, does that sound wrong about God? It's not. God is generous. And yes, he will continue to uh, contend with our souls about many of our sins. But listen, some of those that we desire to keep. And let me assure you that each one of us has some of those sins. Some that we desire to hold on to. He will surely let those remain to do their work in us. Sometimes leaving us without good health or with a broken family or some other very painful condition. And he tells us that if we are in that condition, 
that we may barely get into heaven by the skin of our teeth. Listen to these words of warning in 1 Corinthians 3. He tells us, The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. But if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved. Yes, but only as one escaping through the flames. That's a frightful condition to be in. That we would hold on to certain sins so tightly and refuse to give up on them until this takes place with us in our last breath. Let me read that again. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as if as one escaping through the flames. Folks, all throughout these scriptures, we can read where the Holy Spirit, through our conscience, convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment, guiding us away from those sins that seek to take control over us and then His Spirit urging us on towards love and good works instead. I want to encourage you and me to let the God-given guilt do its work in our souls. I pray that as with Herod, fear of retribution from the realms of God or whatever other form of anxiety that might be produced within us, that it'll take place and it will lead us out of our sinful condition into repentance. If you and I begin to experience guilt and fear for sins that we're holding on to, God's plan of repentance really is ready and available to each of us. We simply need to cry out to Him, asking Him to forgive us of our sins. And then we need to turn from those sins and do them no more. And folks, on that occasion, sometimes it might mean that We have to go back and make amends and restitution with some people. And if that seems to be profitable to the Lord and to that other person, then we ought to do that. But we need to seek the heart of God on all of those matters. When that guilt comes to us, we need to ask the Lord, what is He wanting us to do? But folks, listen, we need to understand that while some of the responses that might be defined by our circumstances, repentance is not one of them. Repentance is not an option. If the Holy Spirit is reaching into your, my heart, convicting us of sin, repentance is what God is requiring of us. We don't have a choice in that. And that will be so for every sin that we commit. We must never allow ourselves to live with unresolved guilt. Let me say that again. You and I must never allow ourselves to live with unresolved guilt. Unresolved guilt will exact such a heavy penalty upon our souls, and maybe for a lifetime, and on into eternity. You and I need to immediately go to God with our sin. And if we do that, then He will surely forgive us. Listen to these words that I read at the beginning of our service from 1 John 1 where he tells us, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, before I close, may we take 
a moment and pause with some quiet searching, asking God to look deeply into our souls and to reveal to us any manner of sin that we've been holding on to and to bring us to repentance for that sin. So let's close our eyes for just a few moments and then I'll close in prayer. Ask the Lord to reveal any of those sins that you're holding on to and repent of them. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, you love us enough to tell us when we're wrong. Help us to hear your still small voice and repent of any of those sins that we've been holding on to. Pray in Jesus' precious name.